From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. And then there were two. The Tri-County Health Department is losing Douglas County. Commissioners unwilling to follow mask mandates in schools. Dougco is creating its own public health agency. We really just don't know what it's going to cost. The county doesn't know what it's going to cost. Then, a historic home bulldozed. It belonged to the first black medical student to graduate from CU. Today, the story of Dr. Charles Blackwood and the scholarship in his name that aims to diversify medicine. Later, a 78-year-old fashion model fights ageism, one photo shoot at a time. Sometimes people are afraid of older people and don't want to be around them. Really, it's just the fear of your future self. She calls herself the style crone. Crone's a word she's trying to reclaim. I'm J.C. Futrell, and we donated our car to Colorado Public Radio. My family and I love CPR. That's where we get our news, our entertainment, and we love the local stories. It's been a dream of ours for years to be able to donate a car. We uh, totally recommend it for anyone else to do. It took just a few days between submitting online and having the tow guy come and take our vehicle away. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. A school mask mandate has led Douglas County to take a drastic measure, one that it has threatened before. That's creating its own health department. Elliot Wensler of Colorado Community Media is covering this story. Welcome back, Elliot. Hi, thanks for having me on. Indeed, Douglas County commissioners threatened to leave Tri-County Health before they backed off that, though. So what's the deal? Yeah, so Douglas County commissioners originally planned to leave the health department back in July of 2020, and then they decided to actually back off of that plan because they were given the option to opt out of public health orders going forward. Most recently, Tri-County Health Department uh, actually rescinded that uh, availability for their counties. They said no more opting out, and they put in place a mask mandate for all students that Douglas County was going to have to follow. So they decided to finally leave. This was a deal breaker for Douglas County commissioners who met earlier this month, appointing two of their three members to the board of what will be the newly formed health department. Uh, Do these two have professional backgrounds in public health, Elliot? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. And my understanding is that that's not a requirement to serve on a public health board. Right. There aren't really requirements. There are recommendations that the board members have experience in areas like public health, medicine, education, community advocacy, business, you know, things like that. The commissioners did tap two people who currently represent Douglas County on the Tri-County Health Board, as well as a member of Douglas County's Public Health Advisory Committee, uh, presumably folks with a little more background. What do we know about them? Right. So the two members who currently represent Douglas County on the Tri-County Board of Health are Dr. Linda Fielding, who is a radiologist, and Kim Muramoto, who is a trauma nurse. They're both relatively new board members for Tri-County. They were added in the past six months or so after the county had disagreements with their earlier board members. So far, we've seen them vote sort of generally against continued COVID-19 precautions, things like mask mandates in schools. And then that third uh, figure who's coming from that advisory committee, what do we know about him? 
Yes. So Doug Benevento is that final member. He currently works as an attorney. In the past, he was the head of Colorado's Department of Public Health and Environment. Uh, He was part of the reform-minded school board movement in Douglas County during the Trump administration. Most recently, he was nominated by the president to serve as the deputy administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. Hmm. Is this composition of the new Douglas County Health Board, is it cast in cement or might it change? Right. It it could change. Commissioners have said that later on they may expand the Board of Health or reconsider its structure. They even talked about possibly having elected officials serving on that board. But for now, they just wanted to go ahead and immediately move forward with this structure. The, The fundamental question here is, would a new public health department in Douglas County preserve politics over public safety? Right. And I think that while Obviously, two of the county commissioners are on that board. The rest of them are people appointed by those county commissioners. Uh, That Board of Health also has very specific statutory requirements that they're going to be required to follow. Um, So that's things like they have to enforce state public health orders. They have to control communicable diseases, which includes, you know, quarantines and closures. They need to look after things like food and water safety. They have to address nutrition, disease prevention, mental health, substance abuse. You know, those are all lined out in the Public Health Act of 2008. Okay, that's a state law. And so it's not all loosey-goosey here. There are some state requirements they're going to have to follow. What will it take to actually form a new health department? Just curious if the county has the time and expertise and money for something like that. Right. So the money question has been a really big one on a lot of people's minds when it comes to this. And uh, we really just don't know what it's going to cost. The county doesn't know what it's going to cost. They have told me that they're hoping that they can use state and federal grant money to help pay for it. Um, They also have already paid for services with Tri-County through the end of this year. So they're planning to continue getting those services, at least until then. After that, they actually are looking at if they can still continue to get services from Tri-County. And then maybe also contract with people in the private sector, with nonprofits, um, as well as providing some of their own direct services. Oh, it's kind of awkward. It's like having to live with someone after you divorce them. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Fundamentally, is the public health department just an advisory voice to the county commissioners? I mean, you've talked a little bit about what it's responsible for, but, you know, is, is it autonomous in some way? Right. It is autonomous. It's not like each decision made by the new public health board is then going to go back in front of the county commissioners. You know, it's not an advisory board. But um, again, it does have two of the county commissioners and then three people that they appointed. Now, who would lead a new health department? I mean, the board is one thing, but like there's got to be an executive director, right? Right. So that's going to be one of the first big things that the Board of Health is going to need to decide is who's going to be that executive director. Uh, I want to add, though, that that is also something that is very specifically stipulated under state statute. The person who leads that department, they have to be either a physician, a physician's assistant, a public health nurse, um, whoever it is, has to have at least five of the last 10 years working in public health. If it's not a physician, they've got to have a master's degree in public health. And then in that scenario, they would also have to hire at least one doctor to be an advisor to that non-physician director. So there's very specific 
we outlined, you know, what what that person's required to do. What have you heard from the public about this decision, uh, you know, for Douglas County to go it alone uh, in terms of a health department? We've definitely heard some very strong voices on both sides of this issue in places like public comment during meetings. You know, I've been in at least one meeting where it was very overwhelmed with people who said, you know, spoke against mask mandates, spoke encouraging commissioners to form their own health department. But then we also have results from a scientifically conducted poll from earlier this year that showed that 60% of residents said they felt it was a good idea for the county to be a part of Tri-County Health. To stay. Um, to, to remain, yes. Commissioners said they believed that that was a kind of an ill-informed response. But yet, you know, it's kind of hard to tell when we're seeing, you know, that poll but then also hearing different things in public comment sometimes. Mm-hmm. When is all this official? And has that new board even met yet? Right. So it actually becomes official once that new board meets, which has not happened yet. Uh, it hasn't been set as far as I know. A spokesperson did tell me that they're hoping to have that meeting occur before the end of the month. And once that happens, you know, it's official. Tri-County's mandates, the school mask mandate, is no longer going to be in place in Douglas County. Because there will be a discrete Douglas County Health Department. Uh, Tri-County, by the way, refers to Douglas, Adams, and Arapahoe counties. I suppose it becomes bi-county health after this, but has Tri-County responded to all these goings-on? They have pretty much just said that they want to help in the transition. They're saddened to see the relationship and they want to make sure that services continue for Douglas County residents. And we've also started to see that there may be even more changes down the road for Tri-County Health. Uh, Adams and Arapahoe have both said they're now considering pulling out and forming their own health departments because of you know this action. So we kind of have to just watch and see what happens for Tri-County and, and find out what its name is going to be later on. Huh. Thank you so much, Elliot, for being with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Elliot Wensler is a reporter for Colorado Community Media and covers Douglas County, including the commissioner's decision to create their own health department. He was the first black medical student to graduate from the University of Colorado, and Saturday would mark Dr. Charles Blackwood's 100th birthday. Dr. Blackwood graduated near the top of his class in 1947, and the native of Trinidad, Colorado, is making an impact long after his death. There's a new multi-million dollar endowed scholarship in his name at CU, designed to grow the ranks of physicians of color. Dr. Terry Richardson led the fundraising campaign. She's with the Mile High Medical Society and the Colorado Black Health Collaborative. And doctor, welcome back to the program. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. A little later in the show, by the way, we'll have the story of Dr. Blackwood's Denver home, which was recently demolished. Uh, But Dr. Richardson, how did you come to be familiar with Dr. Charles Blackwood? Yeah, so while we were working on the endowment, one of our members said, hey, it would be nice to identify the first Black graduate of CU Medical School and name the endowment after him. And so it kind of laid there as just a seed for a while. But I love history, so I picked up the idea and started uh, working on trying to find the first graduate. And at the time, I had a student who was very interested in helping out. And he went over to the school and started looking at some of the pictures on the wall. 
So we thought we identified the first person, but we want to be absolutely sure because there have been those types of errors where someone's listed as the first, and then we find out later that that wasn't the case. Mm. But we worked real hard on this. Uh, the student kind of went on and did his thing, but I continued working on this and did find indeed that Dr. Blackwood was the first uh, Black graduate. As I said, uh, he grew up in Trinidad, Colorado, near the New Mexico border. Did you find what led him to see you, like what that path was? You know, and uh, there was a, a little bit of information out there, not much. It was very difficult initially, uh, but I was able to track down his son. And it was really interesting to me that a Black family was down in Trinidad, and I'm still trying to do some work to figure out why the family went down there. But he was Colorado-born. He went to uh, the community college down there in Trinidad, and he did so well at the community college they actually got a scholarship to CU Boulder, and he majored in uh, chemistry there. Uh, his family member, who I talked to briefly, said that they knew he would always be a doctor. At five years old, he knew he wanted to be a doctor, but huh. there's also a story about him wanting to run off with a band after high school, but his family redirected him. Uh, that he wanted to be a doctor from the age of five. Were you able to find out exactly why or what were the signs? You know, I asked his sister who he has one sister who's still living. And I talked to her a couple of years ago. She lives in Chicago. And she said they always knew at five years old. And I said, well, why did he want to become a doctor? She couldn't give me that information, but said huh. that was one of his his desires, even as a, a young person. But there was no clues as to why that was. This is a mystery you're still trying to solve. Do you have a sense of what his time at CU was like? Um, and there's very little said about that, but in the Trinidad News, when he was honored in 2005 by the university, said that his experience was a little different as a, a Black student. He had to sit in different places in the uh, study halls, and he also had to uh, monitor where he lived in the community. But I have not been able to confirm that with his son. Um, his former wife is deceased, and his son is ill, but he just really loves his dad and was willing to talk about what he knew. But of course, he was not born when his dad was in medical school. So mm. it's all hearsay. But there was one article in the Trinidad newspaper that mentioned that he was treated differently because he was a black man. And that perhaps there was some segregation in terms of housing while he was at CU. And then he graduates the, at or near the top of his class, right? Top 10, I think. Yes, he graduated the top 10, which was interesting. He ended up going to New York to do his internship. But I had the feeling from reviewing some documents that that may not have been his favorite place. He was a Colorado guy. You know, we have pictures of him on horseback and, you know, down in Trinidad. And I suspect that he really wouldn't have chosen to go to a big city like that. He came right back after that first year and completed his residency here in Colorado and then began his practice. So to me, he's like a Colorado legend who really belonged in Colorado. Now, uh, it's important to put this history into some context. Uh, CU is um, not the only medical school currently in Colorado. There's Rocky Vista. And there, there have been previous medical schools in Colorado that are now shuttered that had graduated doctors, physicians of color, correct? 
Yes, and actually during the research, I found that Dr. Spratlin, Dr. Paul Spratlin, um, graduated in 1892 from DU. Uh, University of Denver had a medical school back in, in those times. And there was also another graduate from another medical school. Uh, Colorado had several medical schools back in the 1800s. And there was another doctor, Samuel Raines, that graduated from one of those other medical schools. So there was a few. And I was also found that during the silver boom in Leadville, that there were a couple of black doctors up there in like the early, well, the late 1800s, there were a couple of black doctors. I was able to identify one by name and he was Dr. George Brooks. And I was surprised to find uh, black doctors in Leadville. That was interesting. And he had graduated from Howard University in 1871 and then died in, um, in um, Leadville in 1887. So that was really interesting. This was a cool project is learning about some of the early black doctors here in Colorado. And, you know, of course I was a busy practitioner. So uh -huh. I was doing this in between <laughs> that and trying to work on the endowment, but I love history. And so it was really exciting. I was able to get some pictures. I talked to curators from CU Boulder, from DU, I also um, talked with Dr., not Dr., but Tom Sherlock, who is a medical history uh, a historian, has written books, and uh, he was able to help me. He had been researching some of the doctors in the area, and when I first started working on this, I asked him if he knew of any graduates from uh, CU before 1947, and he said he had researched through 1933 at the time, and he had not encountered any black graduates. Yeah, that, so that helped really realize that we were on the right track and Dr. Black was the first graduate. We later found, or I later found that they had had a celebration in 2005 at the university to celebrate Dr. Blackwood as the first graduate, but no one had remembered because we started there first asking university, do you know who your first black graduate was? And no one seemed to remember. Then I stumbled upon this 2005 event where they really celebrated him. And they actually had a lot of the community, a lot of his uh, classmates were, were still there. He, he was dead at the time. He died in 1993. 93 in Denver. And, and it is remarkable to me with the historical context that you add here that it isn't until 1947 that the CU Medical School graduates. It's first black student. Um, and you, I understand, would still run into patients who remembered him uh, up until fairly recently. Uh, but I'd like to talk now about this endowed scholarship in his name, Dr. Charles Blackwood's name. Your organization raised a million dollars. The med school matched that with another million. And under its former president, Mark Kennedy, the CU system contributed a million as well. And so all of that means earlier this year, you were able to name four students as the inaugural Blackwood Scholars. Uh, Dr. Richardson, what can you tell us about them? You know what? That was an exciting moment. And the first year students are very busy. So we did have an event to celebrate them. We were celebrating ourselves, but also celebrating these students. We really wanted to develop a legacy for uh, Black doctors. And we know it starts with medical school. It's a very expensive endeavor. So we have four great students. They were really excited to receive these monies to help further their education. And we always say to students, 
you owe us nothing but to give back to the community. And we feel like supporting them financially and also supporting them being a, a network of support for the students will ensure their success at CU. Uh, in recent times, CU has really been committed to uh, equity, diversity, and they've really worked hard to bring in students, but they've noted that funding, housing, are some of the issues that keep them from getting as many uh, diverse students as they would like. So we are proud to have worked on this campaign to get the monies, and uh, we really appreciate the dean and the president's support and this will be in perpetuity. That's the important part about this. This is not just a one-time scholarship for these four students. Mm. We have money to continue until I'm long gone. I'll note that the African-American enrollment at the CIA School of Medicine is roughly in line with the state's black population, so just under 5%. Is that a meaningful comparison to you? Compared to, I mean, I've been around Colorado. I'm not a native, but I've been around a long time. And there were times when there were zero Black students in the School of Medicine, or there was one. And, and actually through probably just past the civil rights era, there was like one student per year or every other year. Uh -huh. So this is significant to have more than just one. And I think the school is really committed to that. And I suppose that leads us, as we wrap up, to a broader question, which is why it is important that the physician corps be more diverse. And, and you know, perhaps you can answer that in the context of the pandemic. Yes, and we see um, health disparities and health inequities have been going on for decades. And there have been actual studies to show that if you have Black physicians caring for Black patients, then that will definitely help close some of those gaps. And we've had problems in Colorado just even matching the small percentage of Blacks that are here with physicians. And I think it starts with cultivating your students here. A lot of them will, even if they don't do residency here, they'll return and mm. serve the community. It's just so critically important. I uh, have retired, but many of my patients as I was leaving said, I want to have another Black doctor. And I really didn't have a lot to offer them. Just because of the history of Blacks in America and some of the mistreatment, it's important for people to feel like they have someone that they can trust and someone with a lived experience that they share. And that is uh, really why it's important to make sure that we're uh, developing and creating more uh, black doctors here in Colorado and in the nation at large. Well, I'm so grateful for your time and uh, the fact that you found time to do all of this research about Dr. Blackwood and then share it with us. Thank you, Dr. Richardson. Thank you for having me on. Dr. Terry Richardson, Outreach Coordinator, the Mile High Medical Society, a group of African-American healthcare professionals in Metro Denver. She helped raise money for an endowed scholarship honoring Dr. Charles Blackwood, a way to honor his history. At the same time, some of that history has been wiped out, which we're going to hear about now from the executive director of Historic Denver, Annie Levinsky. Annie, welcome back to the program. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. For much of his adult life, Dr. Blackwood lived at, I think it was 2436 Gaylord in Denver's Whittier neighborhood. How did the house come to your attention? 
Yeah, that's right. Um, so our organization is a nonprofit and we offer preservation assistance and build awareness. And we launched a campaign back last spring in about March uh, called 50 Actions for 50 Places. And it was part of our 50th anniversary celebration, but we invited the community to nominate places that they thought had special significance in their neighborhoods that they wanted to see hopefully preserved in some way or that the stories of these places would be told and be um, that folks would be more aware of them. And so the Dr. Blackwood's home was nominated as part of that campaign, the 2436 Gaylord Street House. Um, we collected those uh, submissions through about mid-May, and then we had a panel uh, working to narrow down the list because we got over 100 nominations. So just as we were working to narrow down to the top 50, um, and Dr. Blackwood's house was uh, going to be among those top 50, uh, we learned that it had actually been demolished uh, the week before um, our deliberations. Wow, what fascinating timing, which we'll unpack. But can you describe the home? Did, did, did you get to see yeah. images of it before it was raised? Yes. Um, you know, it's a it's a type of home that a lot of folks in Denver would recognize. It was sort of a um, light or blonde brick bungalow, uh, one-story house. Um, and, and on that side of Whittier, there is a number of bungalows, a fairly common. Uh, Dr. Blackwood lived there from 1951 until 1973. So in the years just after he got his medical degree um, and when he was working, you know, not too far away, uh, had his office at the American Woodman Life Building, uh, which was actually built in 1950. So right as he was getting going, it was a brand new building. It's now a Denver landmark. Um, But yeah, his house was a a pretty um, common looking Denver bungalow, but those can really hold untold stories and are a really vibrant part of our city. Okay. But where he worked, you're saying, is preserved to history. We haven't lost all of the, uh, the edifices associated with his story. Correct. Yeah, the American Woodman Life Building, a lot of people would recognize that building at 2100 Downing Street. So just behind the the hospital complex is there. Uh, And the American Woodman Life Company was an insurance company that particularly provided services to the African-American community. And Dr. Blackwood uh, had an office space in that building where he uh, operated his practice for a long time. I understand that Dr. Blackwood's home, again at 2436 Gaylord, uh, the nomination for that came from a neighborhood group, Capitol Hill United Neighbors. And uh, they actually helped bring all of this story to us as well. Do you Mm -hmm. know any of the, the finer points of how a home that seems to have had a fair amount of charm and certainly a lot of history uh, got demolished? Yeah, and you know, sadly, it's not an uncommon story in Denver these days. Um, we're averaging between five and 700 demolitions a year over the last decade, which is a high rate of demolition. You know, We've torn down more homes in Denver in the last decade than we have protected with preservation um, you know, services over the last five decades. Um, you know, so the demolitions at this point are um, outpacing uh, preservation. And, you know, unless the building really um, flags and rises up, uh, you know, well before it's demolished as significant, it can be very difficult to save. The timing on this one is particularly unfortunate. Um, we would have loved to have had a conversation with the owners. They may not have been fully aware of this story um, or of the significance of the home. Um, so, you know, that was part of the impetus for our 50 Actions campaign and some of the other work that we do through our Discover Denver project, which is a partnership with the city, is trying to proactively identify these places. Uh, it's great when when folks like Dr. Richardson do this research um, and, and the neighborhood group, Chun, that bring it forward because then um, the community has time to try to act and try to find a great solution because um, we know there's great ways that these buildings can continue on um, and provide, you know, meet demand, housing demand in our city, provide um, important services to our community. Yeah, because there is a tension here, right, between preserving history 
but also the necessary progress and space making for new people and more people. I don't know. Talk to me about that tension. I don't want to just demonize people who build new homes where old ones used to stand. They might need more space for a growing family, you know? Right. Yeah. And this particular home is being replaced by another, uh, just a larger single family home. That's what the zoning is. That's not always the case. Um, You know, one, one thing we're really working on to help resolve this is, you know, you can build things like accessory dwelling units um, on historic properties is a great way to add either additional space for the primary occupants or an additional unit for, you know, another family or another individual to live in. So there are some great opportunities there. We also see um, buildings enlarged, um, you know, additions can be made to historic buildings, whether they're designated or whether or whether they're not. So we know there's a lot of opportunities and sometimes we're able to work with owners to find a way to do that um, if there's enough time. And in this case, the, there, you know, simply happened so quickly um, and we weren't aware of it prior to that. So we are working to get ahead of that. But a lot of our older neighborhoods, Whittier included, um, actually are quite dense, um, you know, compared to a a number of their uh, more suburban counterparts. Mm -hmm. Um, And we, through our 50 Actions campaign, a number of other important homes in the Whittier neighborhood came forward. um, And we're going to continue to work on those and find ways to strike the balance that you're uh, discussing, you know, because we want, we know that we will grow as a city. We want to welcome new folks, but we also want to feel a sense of rootedness in our community. And we want to honor people like Dr. Blackwood, who were, you know, important members and contributed so much. Okay, well, we should talk about some of the other homes and places on this 50 places list, these sort of Mm -hmm. final contenders. Do you want to name another in the Whittier neighborhood? Sure. Yeah, there's quite a few. Um, There's actually several almost all together clustered around 25th and Gilpin. Um, That's where the George Morrison house is, another bungalow. But George Morrison was a well-known and prominent jazz musician in the mid 20th century. Um, Also the home of the artist Bob Raglan. Um, who was an advocate for artists being paid uh, a living wage um, and being able to earn, um, you know, earn a living with their work. Um, the homes of some of the folks who worked at the American Woman Life Building um, are also along that block and were designed by a well-known architect named David Dryden. Um, so that's sort of a, a whole cluster right there in Whittier. Uh, and then nearby in City Park West is the home of Irving P. Andrews. Um, and this is one of the actions that's moving forward sort of um, Ahead of some of the others, um, that's 2241 York Street. And he was a prominent African-American attorney who both lived and worked in that home, worked on cases like Brown versus the Board of Education um, and a number of other important uh, legal matters in Colorado and elsewhere. And so these are some of the stories that bubbled up through that campaign. um, And we're really excited to be working with the property owners and the community members to customize an action that makes sense for, for each of these places. Uh, Annie Levinsky from Historic Denver, many professions, public radio included, are wrestling with their role in systemic racism. And I I know that includes historic preservation. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, just briefly, we we have just about a minute. Talk to me about that reckoning. And Mm -hmm. um, are you trying to ensure that places that reflect the history of people of color are more represented? Yeah, absolutely. Um, That is something that's been important to our board and our organization for the last several years. Um, And diversity, equity and inclusion were one of the main things that we were looking at when we launched the 50 Actions campaign, wanting to uncover these stories that hadn't been told or hadn't been amplified and celebrated in the same way. 
uh, perhaps because they weren't the stories of the original builders of the building, mm. which is how historic preservation has traditionally operated and has bias baked into it uh, in that case. Um, so yes, we uh, diversity was a really top priority. Uh, we also just recently completed a project in La Alma Lincoln Park in partnership with the neighborhood there to recognize um, leaders and moments in the Chicano movement. So there is growing awareness, growing momentum around recognizing the places of people of color, celebrating those, um, and amplifying the stories that haven't been told through preservation. Annie Levinsky, Executive Director of Historic Denver, talking about the home of Dr. Charles Blackwood, the first African-American graduate of the University of Colorado Medical School, as well as other historic buildings in the city. There's a lot that scientists still don't understand about how water moves through mountains. A new study is underway near Crested Butte to help better predict western water supplies in an era of climate change. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis reports. About nine miles north of Crested Butte is the once abandoned mining town of Gothic, Colorado. In the 1920s, the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory was founded here. Since then, thousands of field biologists have studied the streams, snowfall, and soil of this diverse mountain ecosystem. Now, researchers are aiming their instruments at the sky. This project is trying to make the atmospheric connection of how the atmosphere fuels the watershed and where all the water comes from, from the snow and the rain, how the weather may affect that. That's John Bilberry, the project manager. He's standing in front of a row of white shipping containers. These mobile labs have traveled around the world. Each is filled with different research instruments, like LIDARs. It's basically a laser, and we point it up at the sky, and then it pulses a little laser pulse. So based on the timing, it can tell how high the clouds are. Dozens of different instruments will collect an unprecedented amount of data for nearly two years. The information will improve the computer models that scientists use to predict water availability in mountain watersheds. It's important knowledge for a place like Colorado and the West, where the Colorado River starts in the Rocky Mountains and ends in Mexico. The mountains are really the water towers for much of the fresh water in the world. That's Eric Holm with the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory. He says this research will help us understand how mountain watersheds behave with the changing climate. What does that mean for runoff? And what does that mean for the 40 million people that rely on this resource along the Colorado River Basin? This research is for the U.S. Department of Energy. It will build on years of study on water that's on or under the ground in the upper Colorado River Basin. Bill Berry says the missing piece is how an environment as complex as a mountain watershed extracts moisture from the atmosphere. These kind of models will inform decision makers and local stakeholders who use the water that comes from Colorado. The research will help scientists and farmers, water managers and utilities know how much water the West will have in a warmer climate. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. For Turn the Page, we've chosen the new thriller from Colorado's Peter Heller. Get a copy of The Guide and then join us this coming Thursday, September 30th, for a virtual interactive conversation with the author. This means you can be in your PJs and ask Peter questions. His novel is set at an exclusive fly fishing lodge in Colorado. And like his previous books, it's about both nature and human nature. 
So get your hands on The Guide. There's still time to read it. And then get your free tickets at cpr.org slash turn the page. All right, just ahead, I'll introduce you to the 78-year-old Denver fashion model who calls herself the Style Crone. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. School meals are free for everyone this year, but all parents, regardless of income, are asked to fill out an application for free or reduced-price lunches. Because it's tied to per-pupil funding and it's tied to at-risk Title I funding in our most vulnerable population. That means extra state and federal money for meals, extra tutoring and classroom aids, and for some students, waiving athletic and test fees. Schools say asking everyone to apply could remove stigma in the lunchroom. Read the story at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In tangerine heels, Judith Boyd lugs a tripod into her backyard in Denver. Hmm, that green bush is so good with these colors. Boyd, who's 78, is best known to her many Instagram followers as the Style Crone, an account that celebrates fashion later in life. Sometimes people are afraid of older people and don't want to be around them. And really, it's just the fear of your future self, if you're lucky. Today, Boyd's wearing a second-hand robe, 60s-inspired, with more colors than I could count. Blue, lime green, hot pink, orange, all my favorite colors, actually. And then I'm wearing a hat that I bought during lockdown because I couldn't go to a state sale. So I had never shopped on Etsy before, and I became a regular and could find some really good hats. And this hat is striped, and it picks up several of the colors in the robe that I have. This hat reminds me of really bold ties, men's Mm -hmm. ties, almost Mm -hmm. as if they were wrapped Mm -hmm. into a turban shape. Yes, it is a turban shape. I love turbans. I love the shape, and it makes it easier to drive because with brims, it's hard to sometimes function in life. Indeed, hats are Boyd's passion. She has a room full of them inside, used to run a hat business. Now she's a sartorial septuagenarian on social media, with, at last count, more than 82,000 followers on Instagram. Her camera is her iPhone. She uses a discreet remote control to take a picture when she finds just the right pose. There are videos of her as well, sashaying in red boots in Denver's Rhino neighborhood, strutting in a cream gown in Cheeseman Park. Do you like how you look? Most of the time I do. Sometimes when I look in the mirror and I see the signs of aging, it's troubling or what is the correct term? Uh, Sometimes it's difficult to accept. I'm going for acceptance. I'm going for loving how I look no matter what my age is. And I've said frequently, and I've said it on my blog too, that we'll know that we have conquered ageism when the skin of a 20-year-old woman is seen as beautiful as the skin of an 80-year-old woman. And I say woman because that's, I'm a woman and we are judged more frequently for how we look. But when you think of nature and a tree, we don't think that a tree is more beautiful in the spring than it is in the fall. If anything, I think we venerate older trees. Oh, that's true. Boyd just wrapped up a national campaign with haagen She's featured in the book Advanced Style, about senior fashion. And we sat in her backyard in Denver on patio furniture as bold as the robe she's wearing. 
And I asked her about that moniker, the style crone. That word crone has so much weight to it. It does now, but it didn't used to. In certain cultures, it was seen as a very positive term. A woman that was older, that was a, that contributed to the community and was revered and respected. But now the definition is ugly old woman in the dictionary, if you look it up. I could have done style hag. And that actually means holy one. When I was deciding on a name for my blog, which was 11 years ago now, I couldn't think of a word that was positive about older women. Think about it. There's maven or lots of different terms, but they could be used for people of any age, really. And I've been attracted to the word crone, so I decided to embrace it. I am an older woman. I'm 78. And I love to put myself together in outfits. And so style crone, I joined the two, and here I am. Eleven years ago, you started this blog, and what were the circumstances behind it? My husband of over 30 years um, had been diagnosed with cancer in 2005, and there was so much trauma around what was happening at that time because he had a very rare cancer, and it went into remission, but then it returned, and we were told it would never go away, and so he was receiving chemo every two weeks. And so I had this idea of starting a blog, and Nelson, who was my husband, was my first photographer. He had never done that before. I had never done a blog before. But it kind of lightened the situation because we were kind of uh, seeing each other through the lens. There was a lightness to it. Are these outfits, then, that you would wear like to chemo or treatment appointments? Well, of course. I would wear them everywhere. I always have done this. It's nothing new. So every two weeks, I had a series on my blog, What to Wear to Chemo. I would dress up as usual, and we would go to the treatment center. And as we waited for the physician before Nelson received his chemo, then he would take photos of me in the exam room. Nobody knew it except the two of us. Then when we went to what we call the chemo cafe, I had my computer with and I would blog about what I was feeling and what was going on. I blogged about cancer caregiving with outfits. I blogged about death in outfits. I blogged about grieving, whatever I was wearing at the time. And then my reinvention, which is always ongoing. Yesterday, I started with TikTok. An ongoing reinvention (laughs) after his death. Does this project, in a way, still feel like a partnership? Um, Do you carry him with you when you do this? Absolutely. It was a gift, I think, that he gave me. And I can't stop because of that. Do you remember the last photo he took of you? Absolutely. We started doing day dates instead of evening dates as he got sicker and he was still going to the gym he was a rowing coach and the last photo was taken when we went out to lunch and before and after that lunch he took my photo and the very next day uh, was the day that he I guess you could say did never leave the house after that day was in hospice at home and five days later he was dead What were you wearing? Do you remember? I was wearing a a skirt. It was kind of a gray-blue skirt with a white blouse. And I feel like it was a crop jacket and boots. 
Oh, and the hat was pink. The hat. The hat was pink. Now, how many outfits do you imagine you have been photographed in since this project started with Nelson? <laughs> I wouldn't, just as I would not be able to tell you how many hats I ha- own, I would not be able to tell you how many outfits because there's an outfit for every day, for every occasion. And my mind, my brain is always putting together outfits. It's like a meditation. It's my art. And so that's how my brain works now. I want to talk to you about how this, what, what do I call it? Project? Hobby? How do you describe this? Project. I would call it a project. How did it help you through the loneliness, the isolation of the pandemic? Oh, I didn't even feel lonely. I had to learn how to take my own photos because I wasn't meeting up with anybody. Since I'm old and I see that as a positive term, I'm at risk. I'm at high risk. And so... No, I didn't see anybody, but I continued to dress up, learned how to take my own photos. Uh, Right beside me here, I have my tripod. I have uh, a remote and my beloved iPhone, my best friend. Is there something you're trying to say about older women, older people, older fashion that you think needs to be said? Absolutely. We're not dead yet. I mean, I don't, I can't imagine. I think I'll be wearing a hat until, you know, I'll call it my last hat. But there's a lot of ageism all over the world. And of course, it's here and it's so subtle. The more subtle it is, the more dangerous it is. But do you see any positive ads about older people? We should be everywhere, just like um, anybody else is. We should be everywhere in the business world, in the fashion world, in politics, And I don't want to be invisible because we're supposed to be invisible when we're old. I think that ageism takes years off of people's lives. And they have studies. You know, if you become very isolated and don't socialize, that's not good for your health. And people die uh, from being lonely. They get sick easier. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot to say about ageism and aging. How do you feel ageism? Well, there's so many examples, but I began modeling, I guess it was about five years ago, but I get very few modeling jobs. I did get a great modeling job recently, though. I was flown to New York to do the Neiman Marcus holiday catalog, but they were using an older model. And there are some really famous older models, but there aren't that many when you think about it. The point you made that when you get modeling gigs, it's because they're specifically looking for an older model. I thought that was such an interesting point. Like, you get modeling gigs when that's the role, in other words. Right. That when specifically that's what they're looking for, as opposed to being sent to casting just as another model. Do you have a dream article of clothing that you have not been able to wear by perhaps a dream designer? I wear... Everything I have, I mean, gowns and from gowns to jeans to vintage lingerie, it's on my blog. It's on my Instagram because I take from my collection, much of which is secondhand, vintage and so on. I'm into the climate change issue. Is there anything you refuse to wear? Anything I wouldn't wear. 
I mean, I just, I think of my stepmother who hates overalls. She'd never be caught dead in overalls. Oh, something I would never be caught dead in? Um, I don't like baseball caps. Well, you picked the wrong town not to like baseball hats, Judith. I don't judge what other people wear. And in fact, I can appreciate when someone wears a baseball cap. That's their style. It's not mine. You know, the, there's a question I want to ask about what it means that we're talking so intensely about what you wear. Mm-hmm. Because it is also true that women are judged for what they wear far more than men. So reflect on that a little bit for me. Am I paying too much attention to the sartorial side of you? I mean, I know that's, I know that's your whole project, but. Well, it's part of my project because it's uh, outfits and whatever else I'm doing in my life or ageism, climate change, whatever I'm passionate about. To be passionate about something helps me stay healthy. Some people paint, some people garden, you know, I put together outfits. It's been like that. I was a psychiatric nurse as my profession, and I did put together outfits. You know, when I worked in the psyche art at Denver General, I put together outfits when I worked on the emergency team at Park East Mental Health Center. It's just been my lifestyle. Seventy-eight-year-old Judith Boyd of Denver, Instagram's style crone. There are photos from our time together on the CPR News Instagram account. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Strut down the runway team. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Hart Van Denberg. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.